0: The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Did a fair amount of apologizing for not being Pastor Dan and you having the B team up to bat for preaching. As one of your pastors charged by you and by God with the responsibility of shepherding this flock, I want to say I'm sorry for being sorry. God has called me to be one of the shepherds of this flock. And as one of the shepherds, my confidence is not in anything that Chad has to say here today. My confidence is what the Lord might say to us, including myself, through the powerful and relevant word of God. So I ask that you'd please forgive me. For putting confidence in personality. And I ask that you pray for me. That over the next three weeks. As I preach. I would find confidence and strength. Not in my abilities. But in Christ's ability to speak through broken people. Like myself. Thanks. Amen. Amen. (laughs) It's a little intimidating. Because I make sure to look them square in the eye. I also get my dad face on. And my tone is probably the most serious tone you'd ever hear me use. And then I say this. I would rather send everyone home than go through with this. If you are not 100% sure you are committed to this because what we're about to do cannot be undone and no i was never a tattoo artist (laughs) this is what i asked buttoned up grooms and zipped up brides five minutes before their wedding ceremony I want to hear them say to me and to their witnesses that they know what they are about to enter into is binding, is lasting, is lifelong. And I can remember having this conversation with one person in particular. I can see it. I can see where we were sitting. And I knew this person had a history of unstable relationships and broken commitments. And I looked them in the eye and I asked, are you in? No matter what. For life. And instead of my usual one question, I asked the question in like six different ways. And the answer each time I got was the same. Absolutely. And it was only a few years later that I heard this person utter that dreaded phrase that no husband or wife or pastor ever wants to hear. I love my spouse, but I'm not in love with my spouse. This may say, it may sound harsh, but I can honestly say I hate that phrase. I hate it because it's damaged so many lives. I hate it because it's left so many spouses and children sacrificed and abandoned. I hate it because it doesn't make any sense to me. I hate it because it's the antith- antithesis of love. Love is not a fleeting emotion that comes and goes with the passing of time or, or the receding of hairlines or the intensity of emotion. Love is commitment, not convenience. Love is Permanent, not past tense. To love a spouse is to love a spouse. To be in love with someone raises these weird flags of concern because it leaves room for jumping out, jumping ship, jumping the gun. And today we're continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 31 to 32. And to the crowds and disciples sitting on the hill, there was a rampant amount of I love you, but I'm not in love with you going on in their culture. And there's a lot of variations on the theme, and I just want to walk through some of the variations that were going on with Jesus's audience as he's speaking these words. First, there were the Greeks. To them, marriage was the place where a wife's sole purpose was to make babies and keep a home. There was very little interest in pleasure within a marriage. Pleasure was found outside of the marriage with prostitutes and concubines. And there was, there was even less interest in commitment. In fact, to lose a wife as a Greek, all a man needed to do was round up a couple of witnesses and just say to his wife, I love you, but I'm not in love with you. And she was out on the street. Next, there were the Romans. At one point in their history, Roman culture had a high view and commitment to marriage. Religion almost exclusively focused on the stability of the family. In fact, the first 500 years of the Roman nation, 500 years, there was not one report of divorce. Not one. 500 years. But while the Romans ended up conquering the Greeks militarily, The Greeks ended up conquering the Romans morally. And the Greek thought about marriage affected the Romans. And marriage to Romans then devolved into kind of a necessary evil, a duty, a painful obligation. And what happened? Roman women went through husbands like Kleenex. They would actually refer to the various years of their lives by the names of their husbands. Yeah, that was your John. That was your Jack. That was your Frank. And finally, there were the Jews. A place where a commitment to the institution of marriage was held in the highest regard. One would never choose not to get married because it, quote, lessened the image of God in the world love that the only reason someone probably wouldn't get married was a conscious choice to live their life in devotion to the study of God's law but their high view of the institution of marriage and their actual practice were definitely at odds with one another why because their view of women had become very low Women were seen as a piece of property or a thing in the eyes of the law. And that view caused men to dispose of their wives for any reason. She goes out with her head uncovered. I'm out. She burns my toast. I'm out. She looks more frumpy than the girl next door. I'm out. And the keepers of the law, the religious leaders of the day, you know, they had perverted the heart of the law and once again focused only on the letter of the law. And so if a woman was found with some indecency about her and you fall out of love with her, just just come into her office. We'll help you fill out some paperwork. We'll make sure this procedure is simple for you. And best of all, you won't be breaking God's law in the process. Gather a couple of witnesses and this whole thing can be settled in a matter of minutes. And thousands of women and children are being left for dead as a result of this strict adherence to the law of God. And Jesus comes calmly and wisely to bring what he promised in Matthew 517. Fulfillment of the true law of God as he declares these words in Matthew 5, 31 to 32. Read with me. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. This text is really difficult to preach. The coward in me wants to either skip these verses or defer them to Pastor Dan when he returns. Because I know No, sitting in this auditorium today are those who have been deeply impacted by the pain of divorce. Some of us have been on the receiving end of the phrase, I love you, but I'm not in love with you. Some of us have spoken some form of this phrase to an ex and you feel the sting of regret or guilt over your lack of commitment. Some of us have felt the pain of betrayal in discovering your wife or husband of 10 years has been sexually unfaithful. Some of us hear this exception clause in these verses and realize, you know what? My grounds for divorce, it was based on personal preference. It wasn't based on sexual unfaithfulness. And some of us are children of divorce who every time we hear the D word, we recall the silent car rides from moms to dads. Wishing with all our heart that they would just say they're sorry and get back together. And some of us today secretly have the I'm done speech prepared in our heart and mind, waiting for the right moment to drop the D bomb. So I'm thankful for God's word that it meets all of us where we are, it doesn't want us to skip ahead because it promises to minister to us where we are. Today's passage is ready to meet all of us, to surprise all of us, and to show us why we need to hear these passages preached. Let's pray that God would meet us powerfully and compassionately in this time together. Father, as we come before you and your word, we know that this topic is one that's hard. But that doesn't mean you want us to shy away from it. You want us to see you in it. Help us to see you in these two verses. Help us to see your commitment, your love, your character in these verses. Surprise us today with your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing we need to understand as we approach this passage is why marriage exists. And to understand that, Jesus in a similar passage in Matthew 19 reminds us that marriage is God's idea. The religious leaders in Matthew 19 in this passage are asking Jesus' stance on divorce. Why can't a man get divorced? What are the reasons a man could get divorced? But instead of Jesus answering their question, Jesus affirms marriage by going back to the beginning of time. He says this in Matthew 19. And it was not good because God was not alone. God was experiencing perfect fellowship as father and son and spirit. And through the gift of marriage, Adam and Eve would join together and enjoy a similar fellowship as one flesh in perfect relationship with their creator. So when you see Adam and Eve's marriage with God in the garden, you get a bit of a picture of the Trinity. But as sin entered the world, it made its cancerous way into God's original design for marriage. Sin now severed relationship between God and the couple. Adam would blame Eve for her hand in the problem. And Eve would try whatever she could to make Adam okay with her again. And the institution of marriage began to undergo serious attack. But as earthly marriages began to flounder, God instituted another marriage-like ceremony by telling Abraham, the father of God's people, in Genesis 17, this. He says to them, and listen to the language, almost sounds like a wedding vow. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Marriage now would serve as a picture of God's commitment and covenant to his people. Marriage is a reflection of God's secure commitment to his bride, the church. And because of this lasting commitment God has to his people, to us. We, as his people, must remain committed to the commitment of marriage. How does Jesus, in this passage in Matthew, demonstrate for us God's commitment to his people? Well, He does two things. First, through correction, he demonstrates his commitment. And secondly, through protection. First, God is committed to his people through the correction he gives them. Look with me at verse 31. Jesus says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. As we've mentioned over the past couple of weeks, Jesus is shining a light on the perversion of the law that's going on. And the religious leaders of the day had made the law into external do's and don'ts. Get a certificate, you can get divorced. And Jesus wants them to see the heart of the law, the heart of God. So he goes back to the only verse in the Old Testament which provides allowance for divorce. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. And I'm going to read all of it. It says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled for that is an abomination to the Lord. We're going to unpack that verse a little bit, but Jesus is so committed to his people that he's bringing correction to their false understanding of Deuteronomy 24. What are the issues that he's needing to correct from this passage? There's mainly three. First, The people were so focused in on the grounds for divorce that they had completely forgotten about the sacredness of marriage. There are two words in this Deuteronomy passage that became people's go-to to to justify a divorce. It's at the beginning, some indecency. To the most stringent Jew who knew the Hebrew language, some indecency meant... The husband discovering just after marriage that his wife had been sexually active prior to that marriage. That's what it was to be. This was the same rationale that Joseph was using as he was planning on divorcing Mary quietly. But that had become way too old school for the progressive teachers and people of the time the phrase some indecency had devolved into a catch-all for anything and everything a man didn't like about his wife. And Jesus was here to correct it. The second correction was that people began to believe that this passage in Deuteronomy was a command God was giving, like his stamp of approval to divorce. Look it over. What is being commanded here? Divorce? Not a chance. There is no command for divorce here. What's being commanded here is that if a man were to divorce his wife because she's been sexually active prior to their marriage, he has no right to receive her again as he puts her out. God is not giving his approval here for divorce. God is giving warning here. Your wife is yours and you give her up. She's no longer and cannot be again yours. The final correction Jesus is beginning to poke a stick at is their view that divorce is a normal part of everyday life. Nothing could be further from the heart of God. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Any divorce is sin, period. There is no innocent divorce. There is no such thing as a no-fault divorce. And this is why God incorporated this certificate of divorce into the practice. Before then, men could walk basically their wife out the door and declare, I love you, but I'm not in love with you. And that was that. God instituted this certificate of divorce to slow men down. To not act impulsively. Because most men of the day were not able to write. So guess where they would have to go to get this certificate written? They would have to go to the scribes, the elders, the leaders of the day to help them out in writing this certificate. And the hope was there that the elders of the church would encourage no. Marriage is for life. You stay. That was the hope to slow everything down. So why are these corrections so important to the heart of God? Because marriage is a commitment for life. And the only reason for leaving a marriage, according to Jesus, is because of sexual unfaithfulness. And even then, Jesus is not saying you have to leave. He's not commanding you to leave. Jesus is saying you may leave. You have permission. There is a really big difference. As God is committed to his people eternally, so too is marriage a reflection of God's covenant commitment to his people. Because think about it. Were God's people unfaithful to God? All of the time, did God remain committed to them throughout the course of biblical history? All of the time. Divorce is never normal. Divorce is never for good reason. Divorce is never commanded by God. Allowed, yes. Commanded, no. Because divorce runs completely counter to the nature of a covenant God who made us and who made marriage. He is completely and faithfully committed to us. How might Jesus' words then be bringing us correction today? As divorce has become more and more normal to us, our grounds for seeking it have grown as well. We have become really good justifiers for divorce, finding any reason that we shouldn't stay with a person. She's cruel to me. He's stubborn and he's never going to change. She's controlling and she always wants her way. He never talks to me. Now think about God's commitment to us, his people. How does he respond to our cruelty to him? Father, forgive. How does he respond to our stubbornness and our resistance to his change? With patience. How does he respond to our controlling our universes rather than allowing him to control things? Gentle correction. How does he respond to us never talking to him and ignoring him? With persistence. With his still small voice pleading for us when we see how we've been shown this kindness by God remaining committed to us, how are we justified in exerting any other response to our stubborn, cruel, controlling, or ignoring spouse? You will never hear God say, I love you, but I'm not in love with you. Never. God's love expressed for his people is always, I love you because you are mine. A man I, I think it was Tim keller i can 't remember sorry. He heard his wife ask the question as they were headed to bed honey why why do you love me it 's every husband's nightmare well well I say the right thing Why do I love my wife and uh, And this man's thought went, went along this track: if I answer. Because you're beautiful. What happens to my love when she turns 90? If I answer, because you make me feel so special. What would happen to my love when she's struck with Alzheimer's and she doesn't even recognize my face? If I answer, because you're so kind to me. What happens to my love when she calls me an idiot? And in a moment of clarity, the man remembered the gospel and the steadfast love God demonstrates toward us. And he responded to his wife with this. I love you because I love you because I love you. There is no greater security in knowing that God's love for us is not based on our inconsistencies we can provide our spouses with a similar security that they would know our love for them is not dependent upon our feelings or their looks or their behavior. I love you because I love you because I love you. How are we doing at allowing our thinking to be corrected? We need to swim up our culture stream and remember that divorce is completely abnormal. And so for those of you who have been through the pain of divorce, you have full permission, according to God, to grieve with broken hearts because divorce is not the way it's supposed to be. For those who are divorced and remarried, what do I do now? God would not ask you to sin by divorcing your current spouse and return to your first spouse. God asks that you would hear these words today and remember the high calling of marriage and remain committed for life to your current spouse. We also need to refuse to allow these justifications to include God's name. Saying things like, you know, God would understand my divorce since he knows how hard my wife's been to live with. God understands a rebellious and difficult people. But instead of rejecting them, he came down to them. He died for them. While we were yet still sinners, he laid down his life for them. If God is committed with that degree of love, then I am called to love my spouse as Christ loved the church. Those who needed correction were not the only people Jesus was thinking about when he spoke these verses in the Sermon on the Mount. He was also adamant about providing God's protection, both to those who were without a voice and to those who had been convicted of their adulterous sin. Look with me at verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. As divorce became more common, so too did the number of abandoned women. Women made in the image of God were being told often without warning, get out. The word divorce here literally means to put out. Much like you would an animal that's no longer useful to you. And these women were left without money, without a home, without a future, without a protector. And Jesus here is giving warning to anyone who believed that divorcing one's wife was acceptable. He says to the husbands, in essence, you, sir, are responsible for her being an adulterer. The language says the divorcing husband makes her an adulterer as she is left with no other option but to find another home, another future, or another protector in another marriage. The divorcing husband, according to this passage, is the guilty one. And not just the divorcing husband, also the husband who marries another man's wife. The warning is there for any marrying man of the penalty to divorce. It's the same as the penalty to adultery itself which is death. Jesus's words here are like that of an advocate for every woman who's been mistreated by a man. Men who believe you woman are my object to treat as I please. And Jesus says this, how dare you, Treat someone whom my blood was shed for with such indifference and such disregard. Your wife is my creation. She's made in my image. Protect her with the respect and the care that I showed you by giving up my life. He maybe doesn't shout it that loud in this passage. I, I maybe inserted a little bit of my feelings on there. I, I, I am grateful I'm grateful to have a father who has been gifted by God with the ability to protect my mom in this way. You see, my mom struggles with radical, debilitating depression. Depression that keeps her from getting out of bed. Depression that keeps her in bed for days, maybe weeks at a time. It would be the easiest thing for my dad to think, This is not the woman I married because in some ways she's not. My mom was once the life of the party. My mom was the last one at family gatherings while my dad sat in the car and laid on the horn waiting for her to come out. But I've had the privilege of watching my dad protect my mom, protect her by managing the house while she's in the hospital. Protect her by fielding all of the questions which come from other people about how's she doing, how's she doing. Protect her by driving her to her doctor's appointments or taking her food when she can't get out of bed. But this protection is nothing compared to the protection he's providing her by remaining committed to her. Because of fear of my mom and anyone struggling like my mom struggles is. When will he be done with me and with all of this? My dad says, never. When I see my dad protect my mom in this way by remaining committed to her, I see the love my father has for each one of us. Not only was Jesus seeking to protect the abandoned and the helpless wife, he was also looking to provide protection For the one who'd been betrayed by the painful breaking of the covenant through sexual unfaithfulness. He says the words, except for sexual immorality. Again, he's not stating that a betrayed person must leave. He's actually stating that he can leave. And I've seen God bring beautiful restoration to marriages rocked by adultery. But for some, the trust and the bond that has been broken is too painful to restore. The final protection that Jesus eventually would provide is to the adulterer, which is most of the people hearing these verses. As the crowd heard the word commit adultery penetrate their hearts, they were also sure to envision in their mind's eye a public execution. Adultery, stoning. According to Levitical law, the penalty for adultery was death. No adulterous man or woman would ever be able to remarry. Why? Why couldn't they remarry? Because they wouldn't be alive. They couldn't live that long. They would have to be put to death. Adultery, unfaithfulness to the covenant bond of marriage was an abomination to God. He hates it. But, but, he loves his people more. You see, you don't have to worry about stepping into Jacobswell Church with an adulterous past. We're not going to stone you. Maybe you're the adulterous husband who left your wife without protection by divorcing her because you just couldn't get along. Maybe you're the adulterous wife who married a man who divorced his wife so he could be with you. Maybe you're the adulterous spouse right now who's planning your exit strategy because you found a better offer. Or maybe you're the abandoned wife who was treated as an object and not as a person made in the image of God. To all of us here, Jesus is saying, I bring you protection. When we envision our guilt, when we envision our adultery, when we envision Our death penalty. He asks us to remember his cross. Because all divorces. All of our adulterous acts. All of our abandonments. He's willing to own. Christ's commitment to you is heard in the vow he made upon the tree. It is finished. And may we find correction and protection in his resurrection from the dead, which offers adulterous people a new life, a new hope as we place our faith in the God who's committed to never letting us go. I want to close with a story I heard this week from someone I love very much who's experienced twice the pain of divorce. And it's ironic because this friend of mine would say to you that they are the most pro-marriage person on the planet after being divorced twice. And he shared with me one story that I asked his permission to share with you. During the aftermath of his first marriage, after my friend had not only lost an infant child, but also lost his marriage, my friend was struggling hard. Nearly divorced, he he had little will to to keep going. He prayed that God would just let him out of his misery, and he was going to make things easier for God to do that by doing things like driving around without his seatbelt on. It was November, and my friend was dragged by his friends to deer camp. He didn't want to go, but his friends were relentless to get him out of the house. And that morning, the first morning of deer camp, he went for a run in the woods wearing a green hoodie, hoping a hunter might mistake him for a kill. And that night, sitting around camp, his friend blurts out Did you see that idiot that was jogging in the woods today? I had him in my scope and almost shot him. My friend was disappointed. Why didn't he take me out? And the next day, my friend found himself dredging through a field, driving deer with little energy to hardly put one foot in front of the other. As he was lifting a branch over his head, he heard the sound he was hoping for all along. Boom, boom, boom. My friend said, He put his head back and thought, this is it. This is what I've been waiting for. But what came next was both unexpected and completely unexplainable. He describes in that moment as he laid his head back, feeling a peace and a love and a security that he had never ever experienced before in all his life. For months, he had been hearing the words, I love you, but I'm not in love with you, play over and over in his head. And it was in that moment in the field, driving deer, that I'm prone to believe my friend heard, not in audible words, but intangible experience, the correction and protection of God himself. Surrounding him in that field was a God who said, I love you because you're mine. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. No matter how many women leave you or forsake you, I will never leave you or forsake you. I am committed to you. And may each of us here today. Hear our father say the same thing. He's committed to us. Saying to us. I love you because you're mine. And may his commitment to us. Make us a people. Who are committed to marriage. Let's pray. Father. I thank you for these words. I thank you that they remind us of what a good God we have, what a faithful Father we serve, and what a loving Son demonstrates by laying down his life for his friends, by committing himself to death so that we could live. And I pray, Father, for those here today who are feeling stuck in their sin, who are feeling like their past continues to haunt them. I pray, Father, that you would restore to them resurrection hope, that you will bring correction to the things that were wrong, that you will bring protection for the sins that have been committed. Thank you, Father, for your grace and your commitment to us found in In the sacrifice and resurrection of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.